0: Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksania, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksania. All
1: right. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. I'm Abraham Oksania and it's great to have you all here today. I am really excited by my guest today because she's done tons and tons of work, tons and tons of research work on retirement patterns um, and behavior here in the UK. So my guest today is Rowena Crawford, she is the Associate Director at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, and she leads the IFS research on pensions, savings, and retirement behavior. Ruina, welcome to Retirementals.
0: Thank you very much, Oprah. Very happy to be here.
1: As I said to you before we went live, I am a huge fan of your work. And I know that as an academic, or at least that's the way I think of you, you don't get many fun boys and girls, but I am really and truly. Uh, a a big fan of your work, Um, a a lot of work that you're doing around retirement spending, retirement savings. Um, So really, really excited about our conversation today. But before we dive in, um, let's talk about your background and how you um, came to Become the egghead um, at this Institute of Retirement, uh, sorry, at the Institute of uh, f- Fiscal Studies on on retirement.
0: Sure. So um, I suspect my background is somewhat unexciting, to be honest. I mean, I started studying economics at school. Actually, um, I started studying it for A levels. And I fell in love with the subject, Um, you know, I thought it was fantastic Um, for two reasons, really. One is that it helped me understand what was going on in the world and what was going on in the news. And, you know, as a 17, 18 year old, that made me feel very grown up. I I really enjoyed that. Um, And the other thing I loved about it was much more probably than the other subjects I was studying. It, It was very much a way of thinking rather than kind of learning facts and figures, you know, it was very much trying to understand how people act, and an awful lot of economics just boils down to you know you understand that people have incentives and you understand that they face constraints. And they're basically just trying to do the best they can, you know, given given those objectives and given those constraints and it was really that way of thinking about things that could help you understand so many situations in life that you know it was just I just thought it was a brilliant subject. Um, so I went on to study at university. Um, And then when I was coming up to graduate, um, I was actually planning to go into the civil service because I really enjoyed thinking about government policy and, you know, how to make good policies to help people. Um, But then one of my lecturers said, well, have you thought about going to work for the Institute for Fiscal Studies? Um, And I had had heard of the IFS, um, largely because a lot of their research papers appeared on reading lists for various courses and so on. Um, And it was always a dream when they did, because an awful lot of our reading lists were, you know, really heavy-going papers in in journals and so on. And you knew that when you got one from the IFS, you'd be able to understand it, because everything they produced was really explained in very easy, user-friendly language for, you know, the uninitiated. So for a young undergraduate, that was the dream, because you knew at least there was one paper there you were going to understand, and you would read that one first before you go on to other things. Um, So I was was attracted by that. I applied to the IFS. I got a job. Uh, and I've been there ever since, actually, so nearly a decade and a half now. Um, yeah,
1: In, incredible stuff. So let let's talk about your most recent paper. Um, so um, the the paper is titled "When Should People Save for Retirement," um, and and this is of course uh, a, a a a million pound question, I should say. Um, so. Can you summarise the key findings of of that paper for us?
0: Sure. So the context for that work, which I think is important to to probably start with, is that um, there's a lot of concern still that people aren't saving enough for retirement. Um, The government's introduced automatic enrolment, so we've now got people being automatically put in pensions by their employers and they have to choose to leave. Um, and that's really boosted pension membership, you know, to a, to a staggering degree, vast proportion of the population now in saving a workplace pension, but there's still concerns that people aren't saving enough because um, if you just put in 8% of your income into a pension every year for a lot of people, that's going to give you an income when combined with the state pension that's somewhat lower than your earnings throughout your working life. So there's a lot of concerns that aren't saving enough, and there's a lot of st- Talk about well, what should we do now? How should we, you know, change automatic enrollment? How can we increase pension saving? And a lot of our concern in some of this debate is that there's there's not really a lot of discussion about the appropriateness of more saving, either for people or particularly the timing of that saving. And actually, the the timing of saving can really matter. So what we were doing in this work was trying to say, well, look, when do people, act, you know, when should people want to save? Um, because not all years of working life are the same. And uh, we were thinking about things like, well, people have earnings breaks over their life cycle. How does that matter? If people have children. How does that matter? If you go to university, but at least these days, you're probably likely to have a hefty student loan. How does that matter? And the findings are quite stark. The findings really suggest that actually, for an awful lot of people. You want to do a huge amount of your retirement saving relatively late in working life. You want to, you want to push it back uh, until later in life, and that's really counterintuitive. It goes against a lot of conventional wisdom. But you want to save for retirement. You want to put as much in as you can. You want to do it as early as you can, and then you can get compound interest. And you know it's going to be worth more later on the earlier you do it. And you know, it takes a while to try and battle against that notion, but because mathematically that's true, you know, if you, if your only objective is to get the biggest pot you can at retirement, that's true. The earlier you put it in, the more it's going to be worth later on. But the trouble is that not all years of working life are equivalent and a pound to you at some stages of your life is actually more valuable than a pound at another stage. So for example, if you're a young 20 something, you haven't got a lot of money, um you're sleeping on a the floor because you can't afford to bed yet you know an extra pound to you is really valuable at that point in time whereas you know if you're in your 50s you've had a lot of earnings growth you've got a lot of money an extra pound to you then not quite worth so much so that's basically the intuition of what what we're trying to do
1: so, so let, let's be clear here, because I've seen a lot of headlines flying around, including in the FT, and, and again on your own website, that says, you know, government should nudge people to save more into pension when the children leave home, mortgage, mortgages are paid, and student loan um, came to an end. Let's be clear, you're not saying that people shouldn't save in the early phase um, of of their career, you're saying um, again. Maybe I, I get it wrong. The the easier time, <laughs> the, the the time that people can really afford to save is when all of those events have uh, as happened. Am I getting this right, or am I getting it completely? Yeah, no.
0: I think yeah. Broadly speaking, you've got that right. We're not saying that you know it, it's necessarily a bad thing to save when you're young. And particularly if you're in the situation we're now in where automatic enrollment, for example, exists, and if you save in a pension, your employer is going to put some in that's a big financial incentive to do some saving all the time. Um, because you don't want to miss out on, on that What well, effectively accounts is a very high return for your own personal contributions. But what it does say is that, um, you know, additional saving, you might want to be doing on top of that, you really want to think about the timing of that and the combined effect of earnings growth over the life cycle. If you have children, children are pretty expensive, um, but you know, touch wood at some point, they grow up and leave home. So you know, if, you, if you've got a period of working life after your children have left home, that's a really good time to save. Now, of course, not everybody will. Some people have their kids later in life and have a longer period of working life before their children come along. So maybe you know, for those guys, it's, it's better to do a bit of saving beforehand. But for an awful lot of people who do have this period of later working life where their earnings are pretty good, their children have left home, they've paid off their mortgage, that's a very good time to be saving a pension. So you would expect people to ramp up their contributions later in life rather than save a, a steady amount you know, every year.
1: That's interesting. That's very, very interesting. So in the, in the paper, you used this life, start, life cycle model, which is kind of an approximation of real life, but not quite because it doesn't take into account all the uncertainties of real life, um, you know. For instance, returns on investments are inherently unknown, and we talk a lot in the industry about this idea of sequence of return risk. The idea that you know, if you get um, you know poor return. Um, uh, at, at a critical point, um, you know, at a later life when you're saving, for instance, um, that, may well, that, that may have a huge impact on your, on your, you know, on your overall savings part. So I, I wondered, um, my, my question is, if people defer saving seriously to uh, later in life, only to be hit by, you know, poor returns or indeed ill health, for instance, how do you think about that um, in your in your model?
0: So the risk the risks are really important. Um, poor investment return risk is, is one you mentioned. Um, also, just you know the problems of health shocks. Like you also mentioned problems of employment shocks, or you know something like a pandemic comes along and ruins the labor market in those crucial years where you were going to do a lot of saving. Um, clearly, it's it, it's a riskier strategy planning to do all your saving in a very very short window. Uh, but we're not necessarily talking a very short window, you know, if, if kids have left home your mortgage is paid at, at 50 say, that could be another 17 years until you reach the state pension age. So it could, it could be quite a big window that we're talking about through the extra savings. Um, the other thing is that probably suggests that don't leave everything till the last minute. You know, we, we run some scenarios in our model where we do have some uncertainty, and that reveals that people do more saving earlier on, than, you know, but you still ramp it up at those stages later in life. And I mean, it comes down to basically you're trading off. You know, if you if you save much a lot earlier on when you don't have a lot of resources, that's a very definite negative now against you know the risk that um, in some scenarios leaving it late doesn't turn out to be the best thing. So it's very, you know it's it's an uncertainty trade-off really, um, and it comes down to at an individual level I guess how you perceive your. Earning security through life, your employment security through life, your, your own health situation, and so on.
1: That's very interesting. Thank you. So, so now, okay. So I've been told that whenever I'm talking to a researcher, I should use their own research against them. So, <laughs> so in in an earlier paper, working paper that you published, though, how you know titled, how does savings change when individuals complete repayment of their mortgage. That paper actually says people aren't doing that. People aren't, again, if I have read it wrong, correct me. People aren't doing what you just suggested, which is the time to ramp up your savings is when the mortgage is paid off. People aren't doing that.
0: No, you're you're absolutely right. That is what uh, our research says, that, you know, we... T- we looked at data on a sample of people paying off their mortgages in their uh, mid-50s, to state pension age, and something like you know 5% of people ramp up their pension contributions to a magnitude that looks similar to their mortgages. So yeah, there's really very little evidence that people do do this in practice. Um, now, I think that's not necessarily surprising, it ties in with, you know, the general message that people are really inert when it comes to their pension saving, they don't engage very well with the fees decisions. Um, that's why the government introduced automatic enrollment, and why that's proving so successful because people are very inert, they, they, they go with the default, they don't change anything after that. Um, so these two things aren't um, uh, incompatible, I think what we're saying is the best time for people to ramp up their savings is later in life they're not necessarily doing that but i think that's important because it means that if if the government's thinking about future policies or is thinking about ways to adjust automatic enrollment to encourage more saving they should be thinking about encouraging individuals to do that or encouraging more pension saving at those times of life and they can think about doing that through strategies like automatic enrollment or through nudges coming from mortgage providers or whatever it might be to try and encourage that behavior In a way, that's an easy win, right? If people were already increasing their pension saving when their mortgages paid off, and we still thought there was an under-saving problem, we'd be scratching around for, you know, how we're going to encourage people to save more. It's going to be really hard. They're going to have to, you know, give up things. Whereas actually, you know, here's a great time in life. They can increase their pension saving. It won't have any effects on, you know, how often they can go out and eat eat meals or go on holidays and everything because they're used to not seeing that money. So in a way, it's an easy win that we can encourage more saving at that point. You know, the least cost of people's kind of, uh, you know standards of living that we yeah, are used to enjoying.
1: It's interesting. I, I wondered so so I know your fo- your 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 research is often focused on what's happening sort of at policy and decision making level, but I wondered if a um, you know, there are any insights or you know, for, for financial advisors, for instance, in this, there are a lot of insight for financial advisors, but I wondered if, so for instance, you mentioned the 5% of people who are indeed using their mortgage, um, uh, you know, their, the, the payment that they used to pay on the mortgage now contributing that into the pension. Um, is there any particular insight on, on, on why those people are? Are those people richer? Are they um, sort of um, working with a financial advisor? What, what makes, is there any insight that you can offer on that front?
0: That's a really good question. So unfortunately, I don't think we really know. Um, I don't think it's the case that they're the 5% of financial advisors, nobody else does. Um, you know, that, that's not particularly common in, in this country. Um, I'd like to think that financial advisors would be you know encouraging people to think about you know what's your what's your life plan and, you know all the timing of events in your life and how could we fit your your saving um, around those things. Um, but I don't think we really I, I suspect there's basically people that think about these things and people that don't really like to think about these things. But trying to unpick what exactly it is that makes somebody you know a person that engages with their pension, um, I think is quite challenging.
1: I want to move on to. Um, your, your paper on um, financial wealth and how people spend that in retirement. So these, the, your, your work on wealth in, in retirement. And one of the fascinating things I, I took away from that paper is that people are spending, they're their drawing down their, their financial wealth actually um, uh, slowly. Talk, talk, us, uh, t- talk to us a little bit um, about
0: that. Yeah, so this is work we looked at, um, trying to understand what happens to people's wealth in retirement. And we looked at their housing wealth, we looked at their liquid financial wealth. And I guess a, a sort of economic life cycle model that says, well, you're gonna die, you should be using that wealth throughout your lifetime, you know, unless you want to, to give it as a request to someone. So we we're saying, well, you know, what, what do people do with their wealth in practice? Uh, and it turns out that people really don't spend it down to get to nothing uh, by the time they die. Actually, people spend something like 30% of their wealth on, on average. Obviously, there are people that spend more and people that spend less, uh, but wealth really doesn't get either blown early or completely hung on to. It's kind of somewhere in the, in between. Do we know why? Um I think it varies by wealth level. So for people that don't have a lot of wealth, obviously holding on to some is, is pretty important. You might need a buffer stock of wealth in case you know the boiler breaks, or you know, you're earlier in retirement, your car breaks, or you might want that money there to help out friends or family. Um, at higher levels of wealth, I think the quest motives are stronger. People want to give give more on. A, a big concern in this space, but it's very hard to show quantitatively quantitatively or with evidence is um, the risk of social care um, and the role that has on people's uh, wealth and savings decisions I mean anecdotally if you, if you talk to people a lot of people say well I can't spend down my wealth I might need it for, for care purposes uh, because yeah there's some insurance from the state but only if you have um very very severe needs and uh, there's a means test on there as well so a lot of people probably hanging on to some of their wealth um, in case they have those health shops that require those needs uh, which is pretty inefficient really um you know it's, it's it's ripe for insurance with so many other things if there's a risk of something you can buy insurance um but in social care unfortunately that's that's not really the case you have this very inefficient uh, solution where people that have some wealth hold on to it uh, end up, in most cases, not needing it and passing it on um, with the consequence of um, effects on social mobility and so on. Um, and it all comes down to, well, is there a social care problem, actually? It's a big difference to pensions and savings and all the rest of it.
1: This this is interesting. I find that particular point um, fascinating, this idea that, um, you know, people hold on to the wealth, perhaps in fear that they might need it, um, you know, for, for later life when they can't um, do much, right, um, and somebody else has to look after them, but then they end up not needing it. So can you shed some light on how people typically fund um, that later life care cost? Is it coming from housing wealth? Um, a lot of it, obviously, from, from government. What, what, what did you find in that regard? Oh, is it just, is it just um, an overblown fear that everybody's going to need care, you know, uh, care care later in life, and and they end up not needing it.
0: So I'm not sure it's an overblown fear as such, but it's an uncertainty that may or may not happen to you. In fact, the the fraction of people that require care is relatively small. Um, But if it does hit you, then obviously you want the resources to deal with it. So you get a lot of people, you know, potentially holding on to wealth quite sensibly in case that risk materializes for them. Um, but in an awful lot of cases, it doesn't, and therefore, you know, the, the wealth wealth is passed on.
1: So, so you're saying that in in that sort of insult, instance, um, that risk is better insured than, you know, necessarily uh, um, saved for or, or provided for in, in by holding on to to assets.
0: So, it would be, I think it would be better if there was better government insurance of social care. Actually, if the state funded system for social care um, was was better at insuring people, um, because this is a risk that individuals can't insure themselves, the state is very well placed to do that it can pull the risk across the population, it can raise the revenue from 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 taxes. um, And it can provide that service. And that's just much easier for the government to do than it is for every individual to try and self insure that situation. That's just very inefficient.
1: The other thing I find fascinating is how the, um, the proportion of wealth that people are drawing down changes in different phases uh, of, of their retirement. So, uh, you know, for instance, your paper says over, um, you know, a, a 12-year period for, for people um from age sort of 69 to 81 median financial wealth declined by about 14% and then you know for people aged 74 to 86 it declined by 13% and then um and then for for people who are older sort of 71 to 91 declines by 1% so you find that in this let's call it you might not call it that but I'm calling it three faces of retirement, you know, this go-go phase, go-slow phase, and no-go phase, right, when people can't do much, they actually do spend less. I, I wonder what insight we can garner from that in terms of if I were actually going to be a, a rational human being and I'm going to plan for these, um, you know, phases of retirement spending, how, how should I be thinking about this? What proportion of the wealth or... or or asset should I be thinking about drawing down um, at the different phases of, of retirement?
0: So, I mean, the more active you want to be earlier and the higher your spending needs earlier, the, the greater proportion of your accumulated retirement wealth you're going to want to spend in that period probably. Um, I mean, it's also the case that things like transfers to other people, I think are an important kind of component of what you think of as spending or wealth drawdown for old people. Um, and that doesn't necessarily chime with the the three three stages because it depends more on the circumstances of of the, the kids or the grandkids rather than their own stage of life um, and things like that really matter for the profile that that you want to draw down your wealth. But the other thing to bear in mind is you know we talk about wealth a lot um, and in this work we were looking at financial wealth, but it's also it's your total resources really that matter. And I, I guess an important difference between that work and Maybe the world now, or the world we're moving into, is that we were looking at financial wealth for people that had housing or people that had secure pension income streams. So they were already getting a regular flow of income. And this is how they were drawing down their financial wealth on top of that. And of course, now since pension freedoms, we're moving into a world where a lot of people don't actually have that nice secure income stream to see them through their retirement. The decisions they make about their financial wealth or their financial wealth and their pension pot together. Is and that's really crucial because that's going to be determined that you know the whole flow of what they can spend each year through through the time. Uh,
1: and hopefully, you're going to uh, go back and revisit that research and the data to see how that's changed since pension freedoms.
0: Yeah, I mean, how people how people are acting post pension freedoms, I think, is one of the most important um, questions, policy issues um, in in the environment at the moment certainly on, you know, on the drawdown phase, because I mean, there's a massive change um, and it's really difficult. You know, if you, th- you think about the things you need to know to try and make appropriate decisions, you need to know how long you're gonna live. Well, you know, we've done research that shows that people aren't very good at knowing how long they're gonna live. You need to you know, think about what your spending needs are gonna be, what risks you face, you need to do the calculations to just work out, well, you know, if returns look like this, and if I want to spend this much, this is how much I can draw down. Um, and this is for, you know, a population of people that have never engaged with their pension saving throughout their accumulation phase. They don't hold any stocks. They don't know how to invest. And all of a sudden, they get access to this pot of money and have to make all these decisions about what do you do with it to secure your living standards. Um, and I think that's a huge issue. And there's, the government is obviously very concerned about people running out of money too early. you um, can't Lamborghinis. Are they going to go and blow it all? And um, I guess from my own research and from the research we were just talking about about how people spend their wealth in retirement, I think I'm actually more concerned that an awful lot of people aren't going to spend it as quickly as they could. You know, they're going to hang on to their wealth because they don't know how to they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what an appropriate strategy is. And I think a lot of people are very conservative and therefore will just just hang on to it and you know deny themselves a standard of living that they could have been enjoying.
1: This is, this is fascinating. So our our entire business, you know, with Timeline is creating software that helps financial advisors figure these things out, right? How much you're going to, um, you know, spend for different phases of life in in the context of uncertainty around longevity, around investment risk and, and inflation. And the, the thing for me is, yes, there is the fear that some people might run out of money, but also the fear, or, or sorry, the, the even likely possibility uh, around, about, you know, from your research around people actually leaving so much money on the table and not enjoying the fuller life, the, the, the kind of life that they should have. I wondered what your thoughts are, and again, an important point that you mentioned about, well, it's, for me, it's crazy. That people, most people go all their lives not really understanding pensions and saving for retirement. And all of a sudden, we expect them to be able to do that when they confront this retirement, um, you know, drawing down on their portfolio. So, A, my my thoughts, my question is A, given all the the idiosyncratic risk around this, Is this really where, I would say, actually working with a financial advisor becomes crucial? Or are you confident of all, based on all the research that you've done and your understanding of government policy, are you confident that actually we can guide vast majority of people, we can signpost them, nudge them into, into making the right decisions in retirement?
0: So I suspect a a lot could be done by giving people good guidance and giving people, you know, information and helping people at least think about what are the things you need to be thinking about. You know, you you need to think about life expectancy, you need to think about care, you need to think about, do you want to have an active retirement, do you want your three-stage retirement or you're more of a steady gardener throughout kind of person. Um, I suspect there's, uh, you know, some some to be gained by information and guidance and encouraging people. Um, I suspect an awful lot of people would benefit from, you know, more formal financial advice. Um, whether it's worth it for everybody, I guess, you know, depends very much on circumstances. A lot of people aren't going to have a lot in a DC pension, and it's not going to make so much difference to them. So then, you know, clearly less important. For some, they're going to have a lot, but they're going to be more clued up and they can make a first approximation without more formal guidance if they're given the right tools. Um, I suspect it's the, it's the people in the middle that have enough that it's going to make a difference, but not necessarily enough to think that advice is worth it or, or to you know understand that they will get from it, that it is the harder, the harder group.
1: I'd like to see some work from you. <laughs> if you're 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 looking for research ideas on, on what that threshold is at what point of wealth does he begin to actually become, you know, crucial or, or you 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 definitely get value from advice versus versus not. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day. I want to start to wrap this up. Of course, this is a podcast about retirement and we've been spending a lot of time um, talking about it. So for you personally, Ruina, how do you, you're, you're very young, you're still incredibly young, but how do you think and um, uh, um, plan your own retirement? How do you approach this big thing?
0: Counting down the days. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, well, you see, this is where it gets embarrassing. I think I'm very, despite having worked on pensions for like a decade and a half, I suspect I'm very much like the rest of the population. Um, I have a personal pension. Uh, I and IFS pay into it. Um, I'm not sure I've ever logged on. Um, you know, I get statements once a year and I read it, but I, you know, I've picked some investment portfolio when I first joined and haven't really looked so you know certainly don't do as I do um so I, yeah I have a fairly passive passive relationship with my retirement in that you know I saved something now I took along um I, I did actually so I'm lucky enough to have paid off my student loan because I went to university before even the, the 3k increase let alone the 9,000 a year fees I think at that point I did increase my pension contributions slightly so you know I'm doing a little bit as I say Um, but aside from that, yeah, I have a fairly, um, not exactly head in the sand approach, but I'm still young. I've got time to correct my mistakes later in life. Uh, I paint something now and that's good.
1: Um, Do as as I say, not as I do. Uh,
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yes.
1: Brilliant. Very, very humble approach to this. Uh, Thank you for your time, for the incredible work that you do. And, um, yeah, I look forward to reading and seeing more of your work out there
0: great thank you very much
1: thank you i'll be remiss if i don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together led by my producer hannah dickinson Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.com dot co dot uk and you can follow me on twitter my handle is abraham on money until next time thank you and goodbye